Listeners, readers, I'm so glad you've tuned in. Welcome to the Foxed page where we dive deep into the very best books. We end up with a much richer understanding of the title at hand, all while you're learning to uh, read everything a little better. I'm Kimberly Ford, best-selling author, one-time adjunct professor at Berkeley, editor, and PhD in Spanish and French literature. And for anyone out there who doesn't actually traffic in rare books, Foxed Page might be something of a mystery, but foxing is simply those little tan spots that you see sometimes on the pages of really old, beloved books. The book we're discussing today, Louise Erdrich's really incredible The Sentence, is not in fact all that old, uh, but it really is important and it's timely and I'm really excited about diving in. In this first chunk today, this first half hour installment of the lecture, we will be discussing why the book is worth your time. It's really sort of urgent and important and, and very timely, although I feel like it's going to be an interesting sort of historical capsule of the, um, you know, the beginning of this decade. Uh, and then we'll be talking about Erdrich's really interesting biography, then we'll dive into the prose. As always, there won't be any spoilers in this first chunk, but in the second and third installments, we will be talking about plot points, so you might want to finish the book before you listen to those. In parts two and three, we will be discussing even more in depth why this novel is uh, just really built on exceptional prose and why it touches on some very important issues. And then of course, we'll talk about the close of the novel. So let's dive in. For a more immersive experience, you can check out the YouTube channel uh, where you can see me. At this point, I am sitting in front of a lot of books, a lot of really important and good books because the sentence is in fact so um, so concerned with books and the power of language and the power of, of, of books. I should have a big dictionary um, right in front of me, but I actually do not, in fact, have that. Okay, so we're going to dive into the intro. So one thing that we always um, bring up when we get together is this question of why this book. We have a lot competing for our attention, and this novel is, in fact, I think very worth everyone's time. So Erdrich has always been sort of consistently present in the literary landscape. She's written 31 novels. She's 67 years old, 68, 68 years old. Um, but I also really felt like I wanted to um, include a native voice. So we've, as a country, I think have been thinking a lot about our legacy and it felt really important to have a, 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 na a native voice here who really um, has prose that is worth digging into and uh, who's also telling a story that is universal, but that also really does feature the experience of the Native American people. I also loved this book in large part because uh, I knew from the timing, and you know this as a reader, right, when you, when you start the book, that COVID and the George Floyd murders, uh, murder is, is, is coming. So there's this real sense of, of urgency at the beginning of the book uh, that I think is magnified by this sense as the reader that you know what is coming down the pike and you know things are in fact not going to get any better. I love that this is set in Minneapolis where George Floyd was murdered. It, it was a, a look at the murder that I, I just hadn't had. And it's such a great depiction, not only of the pandemic, and, and um, it, that is a, a huge force throughout the novel, and really affects a lot of aspects of the plot uh, and of our characterization. But but there is this very central piece uh, of the murder of George Floyd, and it's a um, it's a very rich tapestry, if you will, of uh, very much like the quilt and the cover art, which we're going to get to in the second part. 
of the lecture, uh, but you do have this real sense of, of the native experience and this, this ghost that is haunting the bookstore and this sense of, of uh, what it is like to be a Native American or of Native American descent, but then also this uh, really strong presence of both COVID and the George Floyd murders. Of course, the prose is incredible. We never read anything that doesn't have excellent prose. And Erdrick is such a, um, such a brainy and such a literary writer that it's just an absolute pleasure to parse and to really figure out what makes the writing so strong. Because a lot of it, in fact, um, owes a big debt to, uh, to, to literature. You know, it's a very sort of intertextual book. There are lots and lots of references, obviously, to other books. So it's really fun um, as ardent readers, as I know you all are, uh, to read a book that is, in fact, concerned with books. It's also a New York Times bestseller. You guys know how I feel about uh, bestsellers. I, I tend to shy away from them a bit because oftentimes the prose is not as strong as it could be. In this case, um, this is a it's an example of a bestseller that absolutely um, stands up to all of my tests of excellent prose. Okay, we're gonna dig in quickly to a little biographical information about Karen Louise Erdrich. She was born in 1954. People go back and forth between Erdrich and Erdrich, um, but I heard Louise interviewed in a couple of different interviews I've listened to about this book. And in one of them, there's this old gentleman who kept referring to her as Louise Erdrich, and she did not, in fact, correct him. So I'm just gonna go with Erdrich. That seems like um, the, the safest bet. So she was born in Minnesota. She was the oldest of seven children. Her mother was a Chippewa woman, and her father was of French descent. So sort of a French colonial, probably Canadian, you know, they're up there in the, in the north. She went to Dartmouth, as did I, uh, and then went to Johns Hopkins University for, uh, for creative writing. She was married to Michael Doris, who was a professor of hers at Dartmouth College, and uh, he was really instrumental, actually, in, in sort of um, inspiring her to write about her Native experience and her, and her Native roots and to really dig into that aspect of her biography. Uh, he had three adopted children at the time who she sort of, um, I don't know if she officially adopted them, but they certainly became part of, of her family for, for some length of time. And then she and Michael Doris had three children together, Persia, Palace, and Asia. Asia, um, which Louise lets us know in the uh, introduction or in the acknowledgments, uh, she was the one who made the cover art, which is sort of this quilt, which is really, um, it's a good sort of metaphor for what Erdrich is trying to do in the novel. So Michael Doris, I'm sure many of you are familiar, he wrote a novel that, that everyone, myself included, really loved back in the day called Yellow Raft and Blue Water. But soon uh, after his literary success and his, his sort of um, great standing at Dartmouth College, he fell, um, wow, fell from grace? I mean, is that one way to say it? I don't know. It seems like a very diplomatic way to say that. Um, he had, uh, with his three adopted children, some of whom were Native kids, and, and they had some fetal alcohol syndrome issues, there was tragedy. One of them, I believe, committed suicide. Um, and then Michael Doris himself actually committed suicide after allegations on the part of his children that he was, in fact, abusing them, uh, I believe sexually. So Michael Doris was, was highly, highly problematic. This all came out when he was separated from his wife and then uh, from, from Louise Erdrich and then uh, committed suicide. 
On a happier note, Louise Erdrich, again, has written 31 books. She uh, won the National Book Critics Circle for Love Medicine. She won the National Book Award for The Roundhouse, and recently, in 2021, won the Pulitzer Prize uh, for The Watchmen. So um, I read Love Medicine. I have not read those other two. For whatever reason, um, I, I just haven't been drawn to Erdrich the way that, that, I had, um, that I have been drawn to other writers. This book actually came um, recommended by one of you, one of you old timey, not old, but just like long standing members of the seminars who was really struck by the first sentence of the book. And um, you all know that I'm, I'm a real fan of digging into that first sentence. And this reader sent this to me and said, check out this first sentence. Um, and I did. And in fact, was sucked right into the book, which often the first sentence does it for me one way or the other. I can tell right away whether or not I'm going to love a work. Okay, we're gonna dive in, not to that first sentence quite yet, but into the cover art uh, of the novel. So as I just mentioned, uh, Louise Erdrich's daughter, Asia, um, one of her children with Michael Doris. Oh, actually, I forgot to mention, she also, at the age 47, had another child, a son, and um, that was with, uh, that child she had with a, an unnamed man. He is married, from all I can tell, in my, in my sleuthing. Um, and, but he's a native man, and um, I think, you know, really a, a very sort of passionate love affair for her. But so, there, so she did, in fact, have a fourth child uh, with someone else when she was uh, a little older than she had her three daughters. But it was her daughter, Asia, who developed, um, who made the cover of the book. It's funny. Do I love the cover art? I'm not sure that I love it. Uh, do I think it's effective? Mm, yes. I mean, it didn't make me grab the book by any stretch, but I do, in fact, like what is happening here. So I like this idea of all of these edges and these things being sort of um, disjointed. So you have a lot of um, significance, I think, here in this idea of all of these sharp angles. This is very sort of tooky in lots of ways. And there's this sense of sort of halves of things being missing and things fitting together in interesting ways, which certainly describes a lot of the ways that the characters in the novel are reacting with one another. I like the idea of a um, of the quilt as, as a metaphor for the novel. I mentioned this briefly before, but there is an idea of a quilt traditionally as being something made of remnants. So smaller pieces of of other pieces of fabric, you know, you don't have quite enough to make uh, curtains or a dress, and so you uh, save all of these bits and pieces and, and and put them together into a quilt. I love the idea of of that being partially what our narrator Tuki is doing as she is stitching together the story of her life uh, and her love affair and her struggles to get along with her stepdaughter together with uh, COVID, with her, um, with her experience of the George Floyd murder. I like the significance of the cover art. I also think it's noteworthy that Louise Erdrich's name is kind of this giant thing. And then down at the bottom, almost as an afterthought, we have the sentence. So you know that you have really made it. Um, you know that, that an author has really um, become an institution when their name is significantly larger and, and uh, comes above the name of the book. I do like to, um, winner of the Pulitzer Prize, again, that refers to Louise, not down here. So she's, um, and the Pulitzer Prize is, is um, oftentimes awarded to a book as opposed to the Man Booker, which is slightly more kind of literary. The Pulitzer is often um, a book that's very topical. And I do think that Erdrich is very, um, she's very good at writing books that in fact 
are, are, are very topical and timely and are not afraid of really tackling some large uh, issues faced by our nation. We are going to then open up the book here and we're going to pass right by all of these blurbs in the beginning. One thing that I really love here um, is, is this disclaimer. So if you are like me, which I'm not sure that um, all of you read exactly the way that I do, I like to read through this kind of boilerplate stuff because often you will be rewarded with some little, little um, nugget that's in this part. So I like the part here that says, any resemblance to actual events, locales, organizations, or persons living or dead is entirely coincidental, except for the dictionary and the ghost. So I love this in part because there's sort of a cheekiness to this. There's a little bit of a wink wink here. Um, the dictionary we learn from the, the I don't know if it's in the introduction or in, I think it's in the acknowledgments in the back. The, the dictionary is something real that Louise Erdrich has uh, in her possession. It was a very important possession for her as a youth. Um, I think as a, like a young writer or young college student, I can't quite recall now. But um, this idea of the dictionary as being something very real, and then I love the idea that she is equating that to this ghost. So there is no, there's, there's nothing in the novel to let us sort of believe or lead us to believe that there is skepticism where the ghost is concerned. There's very much this sense. It's, it's much like Beloved. Uh, there, there are lots of books. There's, a, there's an excellent book called The Bookshop, actually, by Penelope Fitzgerald, where ghosts are just, I mean, there are many, many examples of this throughout literature, um, where ghosts are, are, are just, they're, they're a given. You know, it's not whether or not there is a ghost. It's just what the ghost represents. And I think that ghosts of, of Native American peoples, because in many ways we are haunted as a, as a nation, as we very well should be, um, you know, it, this idea of, of the ghost, whether or not you want to read this as like an actual ghost story versus, you know, the presence of people who have suffered greatly uh, and, and certainly unjustly, uh, you know, I think it's a very compelling way to, to sort of... Um, to have some sense of culpability as as a nation. But I also like um, the sentence before the one about the dictionary and the ghost, any resemblance to actual events, locales, organizations, or persons, living or dead, is entirely coincidental. It's That obviously is very disingenuous because we have Minneapolis and we have these historical figures and we have George Floyd and we have uh, organizations and locales that actually in fact do exist. So it, it, it's this nice kind of interplay with this very metafictive no notion um, and metafiction is simply a way to talk in a novel about the book or about the process of writing. It's this very sort of meta thing where she's acknowledging, yes, this is boilerplate stuff. Everyone in the novels has to say, hey, this is all made up so that they can avoid being sued by anyone. When when that is one of those kind of, it, it's a convention that we have that in, in lots of ways means nothing. In this litigious society of ours, you need to have um, you know that kind of security. But, but obviously um, she's playing with this notion because there are certainly people like George Floyd and like the city of Minneapolis who are in fact very, very, very real uh, and, and feel very real in the novel as well. The presence is, is, is very felt in the novel. And in fact, it's one of the things I like the best is when you have a historical figure or you have an actual locale, it really does help to bring some verisimilitude, a, a sense of reality to the fictive world. We're going to move on quickly here to the dedication to everyone who has worked at Birchbark Books, to our customers, 
and to our ghosts. I love the fact that the ghost there is plural. Um, it makes me feel, it, I mean, I do not think that, that Louise Erdrich should follow this with any kind of a sequel. She actually was asked that question in an interview I heard uh, from a bookseller at Barnes & Noble. And, and this idea of, of whether or not like sort of Tookie's you know, backstory could be developed into a novel or whether she would continue to write about these characters. And um, happily, in my opinion, Louise was like, uh, no. I mean, she did not say it like that. She was much more diplomatic. But but I think she, you know, she sees this, I think, for what it is, which is a, um, you know, a very rich and, and very kind of deeply, richly told novel that, that, that is just, I, as far as I am concerned, it is just the one novel. But I do love the idea of, of there being other ghosts and, and, you know, both in the novel and in real life, Louise Erdrich's home is said also to be haunted. Again, I like the emphasis here about birch bark books. Uh, you have a sense there of birch bark, um, you know, you have a sense of place, a sense of Minneapolis. And it's a little bit of a nod, I think, to nature in the sense that um, it, nature in the Native American culture would have been uh, prized, was prized. And so there is a, a nod to um, what is owed to the land here. But I also love this emphasis about books and booksellers and book readers, just because it's so delightful to read books that are, um, you know, about something so near and dear to our hearts. So then we get to this epigraph. I love this epigraph. So this is written by a, a Korean American poet. Her name is Sun Young Shin. Uh, she, in, this is from something called Unbearable Splendor. And the epigraph is, from the time of birth to the time of death, every word you utter is part of one long sentence. So uh, she also was the writer at one point, or she is the author of a, an essay in 2016 called A Good Time for the Truth, Race in Minneapolis, which is haunting in the sense that this is something that came 2016, well before the George Floyd murder. So there, you know, Minneapolis has, has been, you know, for a long time has, has had a reputation um, of racial strife. And, and it's kind of this eerie sense of this woman as having had, along with many other people, a sense of, of, of trouble sort of brewing there that came to a head, in fact, with uh, George Floyd. But I also, this is obviously uh, an echo of the title of the book. So this idea of, of your life being one long sentence, um, immediately my mind goes to like, wait, how are we going to punctuate that? Because that is going to call for a lot of semicolons and a lot of M dashes, M dashes being my favorite punctuation mark of all time. But there's, there's this sense of like, whoa, wait, you know, it, it, there is this sense of, it's such a great uh, line because it, it gives us a sense of, of life as being so finite, you know, it's this one sentence and yet also this sense of, of um, wait, life is pretty long and fitting it all into one sentence would be tricky. So it's this very nice simultaneous reminder of, of life exactly the way it feels, which is some days it feels very long and some days it feels uh, like it's flying by. So I really, um, I think it's a very well-chosen uh, epigraph. Again, we're going to talk about the title in the second part, which is kind of unusual for us, but the title is so central and it comes up again and again, the idea of the sentence comes up again and again in the novel. So we need plenty of space to be able to really dive in. So we're moving on next to uh, this, this section title. So um, many of you know that I am, uh, my memory, first of all, is really, really bad, but I also tend to be kind of lazy about reading titles of sections. So if it's a chapter title, if it is a, um, a section title like this, for whatever reason, my, my, I think my, 
my like eagerness to jump into the text is such that I, I tend to sort of skim over them. But I really like this. So this idea of time in, time out, um, there's this idea of both being in and out, uh, which, which has to do with so many people um, in, in the novel just in terms of their of their lives and the way that these characters function. Um, you know, whether uh, uh, Tuki's husband is in or out of the police force, whether he's in or out of the American, the, the, the Native American organization that he belongs to, whether Tuki is in or out of prison, whether people are in or out of the bookstore, whether they're in or out of families. So there is this sense of belonging and in and out, but obviously, time in, you do have the sense of time served. And then time out, you know, you also have that sense of like, you need a time out, or I need a time out, or let's take a time out. So there's this really nice sense here of, of a lot to parse from every single piece of this. Um, I like it also in my marginalia here, I wrote a line between time in slash time out. For some reason, I wanted to have that delineation, but I very much like the fact that Louise did not. It's time in, time out is all kind of, it's all blurred together, which is obviously um, very personal, I mean, very purposeful on her part. I also am interested in these little marks that are throughout the book. So um, I don't even know if you notice them as a reader, but they're, they're these little space, uh, space breaks that occur with, um, you know, these little squares. One thing to note is that they echo the um, the quilted cover of the book, if I can extend the quilting metaphor, that you have the the little square that is totally reminiscent of the of the cover art, and in fact, you even have this idea of t of of it being split in half again, time in, time out. Um, this idea of black and white, this idea of division. So even these small these small pieces of the novel are really resonant. So um, one quick note, in case you don't know this as a reader, oftentimes. Um, you'll see, you know, if you're reading a book and it has lots of space breaks, then occasionally you'll come across an asterisk at the bottom of a page. So what that asterisk is meant to signal to you is that there should be a page break or a space break, but you don't notice it because you're at the end of a page. So um, sometimes I think when I was younger, like I'd be like, wait, why are there asterisks sometimes and other times just a space break? If the asterisks are only occurring at the bottom, of pages, then you can be pretty sure that the author um, simply means a space break and the editor has um, has inserted these to let you know, even at the bottom of a page, that there's meant to be a space break. But in this case, Erdrich is not doing that. There is not, um, they're, they're used throughout. So she has them at different points. Sometimes we have just a space break. Sometimes we have a space break with a, a small section title. So we have this large time in, time out section, but then if we turn the page, we see earth to earth. So there's this, um, you know, you have the small section headings, you have the larger section headings, and you have lots of these little squares that are divided in half uh, that are kind of sprinkled throughout. And I think that we could do some very profound and, and sort of very uh, revealing analysis of why sometimes we simply have a space break, why we have a heading, why we have a title, why we have the little box thing, but I have not done, in fact, that research, that analysis. So somebody out there, you want to get after that and let me know, that'd be great. Uh, but, but I can tell you that I think if someone did take the time, it would reveal, in fact, that Erdrich has a very, um, a very intricate and sort of profound sense of organization uh, in the novel. 
One other quick note, we're going to talk about postmodernism later in section two, I believe, if not section three of the lecture. And postmodernism, one of the things that is characterized or that characterizes a postmodernist work is simply this idea of sort of pointing out or constantly reminding the reader that he or she is reading something that, and what they are reading is artifice. So it's the opposite of realism, you know, where Flaubert or um, Henry James is wanting you to, to sort of really sink into a world and kind of like forget that you are reading something. You're so immersed and the details are so rich and the prose is so fluid uh, and the, the, the narrator is so omniscient that you're simply kind of lost in this world. Postmodernism, um, which follows modernism, and in that case, modernism is like, you know, Virginia Woolf and it's Faulkner and it's um, people who really sought to disrupt this idea of the realist novel. Well, realism led to naturalism, which then led to modernism. So um, especially during the world wars, um, you know, the idea of the, the sort of traditional novel did not work for people anymore because that kind of omniscient lose yourself in a world um, felt sort of too naive uh, given all of the tumult in the world. So. Uh, modernism reflected that and really brought to the fore a lot of very experimental work. Postmodernism brings us back to kind of a hyper-realism where you are meant to be very, very um, aware of the fact that you are reading something. Often postmodernism has kind of a social critique, like a satirical piece to it. And, and, and lots of place names come up and lots of um, sort of advertising. And, and there's, a, there's a real critique lots of times of consumerism. So part of the project of postmodernism is, is to sort of keep you aware of the fact that you are reading something that you have purchased for, uh, in my case here, I guess $19 probably. Oh yes, $19, but I have not done, in fact that research. And let me tell you, anyone who's like, oh my God, you know, this book, this hardback book costs $26. All you have to do is amortize that $26 over all of the hours for which you are going to enjoy that book. And you will know that buying even a hardback book is an absolute bargain. So my $19 was well spent, but part of Erdrich's um, sort of postmodernist bent uh, is to keep us aware of the fact that we are reading something that is an artifice. It's artificial. It's not, in fact, a real world. And part of the way she does that is by, you know, fooling around a little bit with the boilerplate disclaimer. And it's having um, a dedication followed by an epigraph with little marks. And then it's having these different, um, you know, large titles and smaller titles. So as the reader, these, these sort of stops and starts and these different, even typographical, you know, different fonts and whatnot remind us of the fact that we are reading something that is in fact constructed by someone who has some sort of political agenda, which is often the case with postmodernism. We're going to take a quick look here at page three, and then uh, we're going to close for today, or at least for section one feel free to dive right on in uh, to sections two and three. But I really love this earth to earth um, after time in, time out, and, and with this idea of the sentence and knowing that there is a ghost involved in the story, if you read uh, the little summary on the back or heard anything at all about, um, about the novel, this earth to earth idea, I really like the resonance there. Again, this is something we could parse you know, for an entire 90 minutes. It has kind of a, you know, um, like ashes to ashes, dust to dust feel. So there is this sense of, of death, which I think is very timely because we are in a moment of ecological crisis, you know, totally unprecedented. So this idea of earth to earth 
is that sense of like ashes to ashes, dust to dust, earth to earth, um, this real pervasive kind of gravitas right at the start, this real kind of threat to all of humanity in many ways. You also get this kind of like, you know, um, Earth to Mars or whatever the whatever that that sort of like um, that cosmological thing is that is that right astronaut astronautical thing that we say um, or like you know somebody would be like Earth to Kimberly you know that kind of thing so this Earth to Earth idea also uh, gives us this sense of of trying to communicate there are lots of different ways that we could we could parse this okay but instead of parsing it further we are going to dive in while in prison I received a dictionary. It was sent to me with a note. This is the book I would take to a deserted island. So I love the fact, I love the italics here. I love the fact that Louise Erdrich uses this, well, that the teacher in this book, um, the Tookie's teacher is using this correctly. When people say desert island, I'm always like, oh my God, I'm gonna have to correct mentally. I'm gonna have to silently in my head correct your uh, expression there because desert island, it just doesn't make any sense, deserted island. Is, is the more correct one, although you sound like a total asshole if you make that kind of correction. So just make it silently in your mind. And thank you, Louise, for getting this correct here. Other books were to arrive from my teacher, but as she had known, this one proved of endless use. The first word I looked up was the word sentence. I had received an impossible sentence of 60 years from the lips of a judge who believed in the afterlife. So um, this is the sense of, we're going to just pause there briefly. Um, while I was in prison, I received a dictionary. So right from the start, we have this sense of, of someone being in prison and no longer being in prison, um, which is important because this is the story of, of sort of a next chapter, again, sort of a, a split in her life, time in, time out. Um, but I received, there's an inflated diction in the beginning there that I really love because our Tookie has read, you know, with a, I think she says with a vengeance or with a vehemence or something like that uh, while she is in prison. And she, we know she's always been a bright kid. She takes an IQ test when she's young and she's very smart, um, but has not received a lot of education. And so the, the sense of having um, books and having things at her disposal uh, ha allow her to, you know, conjure up a phrase like I received a dictionary, which is very different than I got a dictionary. Um, and also, of course, this idea of words, a dictionary as a repository of words, but also as a kind of manual of words is very significant. Um, we talk a lot in these lectures about how the last word in a sentence or the last word certainly in a paragraph or a chapter and certainly a book takes on more weight. So in this case, um, dictionary really does sort of, um, there's a nice sense of emphasis there on dictionary. Okay, um, and then we're gonna get into what I love here, which is a little, let's talk about parsing. We're gonna really get into some linguistics here uh, where we will talk about the sentence. I had received an impossible sentence of 60 years from the lips of a judge who believed in an afterlife. So the word with its yawning sea belligerent little ease with its hissing sibilance and double N's, this repetitive bummer of a word made of slyly stabbing letters that surrounded an isolate human T. This word was in my thoughts every moment of every day. So I think this is largely why uh, that longtime seminar goer sent this to me. I, I often like to look at the linguistics of words because the, um, it, it's, it's kind of a miniature exercise of how I think that the best reading happens. We're parsing the very kind of units that excellent prose is made up of. 
and um, in this case, I it's not this is not like a full linguistic uh, uh, analysis except for the um, the sibilance there. But you have this sense of um, you know this yawning sea. I like the idea of looking at the words, the belligerent little e's. I'm not sure I think E's are particularly belligerent, but maybe kind of, um, you know, all spread out like that, like a small little army of E's. With its hissing sibilance and double ends, um, and I love that she's saying hissing sibilance because a sibilant is that S sound, but of course hissing sibilance is making really good use of, in fact, sibilance. So you have that kind of, um, that kind of meta feel. You also then have an echo of all of those sibilants with the slyly stabbing letters. And not only do we have um, this repetition of the sibilants, that hissing sound, but we also have repetition of the E's and the T's. So you have the sense of sentence um, as being kind of repeated over and over and over in the reader's mind in a way that's very much like what is happening in Tookie's mind. Okay, and then of course we have this an isolate human T. So you have the T. It's it's kind of a. Um, I like the fact that it's standing taller than this little army of all of these um, you know hissing malignant little letters. But it also of course the T um, is, is a T for Tuki. You know it's it's the, the the it's her nickname. It's the first letter in her in her nickname. This word was in my thoughts every moment of every day. Without a doubt, had the dictionary not arrived, this light word that lay so heavily upon me would have crushed me, or what was left of me, after the strangeness of what I had done. So again, we have this excellent sibilant word here, the strangeness, um, with, it actually is more like sentence. It has some E's and some T's and some N's and the S's. So you have this nice echo in strangeness of the word sentence. But what I love about it, um, I mean, this is a very powerful end of a first paragraph, the strangeness of what I'd done. I mean, there is no way, again, I received this first paragraph, um, a photograph of it, a scan of it from one of you all, and um, there was no way that I was not gonna read this book because I was like, what is the strangeness that she has done? So it's very powerful. I like the fact that there is a space break here because it adds, in fact, to kind of the weight of, of this, um, of, of the strangeness and this kind of cliffhangery end to that first paragraph. So speaking of cliffhangery ends, that will bring us to the close of our first section, but do tune in for our second section of this series uh, where we will talk about the title of the work, the sentence, we'll talk about postmodernism, and we'll talk about the excellent use of names. In the third section, again, we'll be discussing maternity, a few faults um, that I will nitpick at, just a tiny little bit of that, and then uh, we will, as always, look at the close of the novel. Thank you so much for joining me. Um, I hope you like the book, and I hope that, um, my, uh, that my thoughts are helping elucidate a little more why, in fact, this book is so popular and so important. Listeners, readers, welcome back to part two of our three-part lecture on Louise Erdrich's very important novel, The Sentence. Today we're going to be discussing the title of the work, which I think is excellent. We're going to be discussing postmodernism and the importance of names and how deftly Erdrich uh, maneuvers them in this work. 
Okay, we're gonna dive in with the idea of the title. So of course, the sentence, um, we have this sense right from the beginning that uh, it refers to Tuki's sentence. So she makes a very um, big deal of that right in that very first paragraph about how she receives this sentence. Uh, and, and she does a nice parsing of the, the sort of linguistic um, pieces of that book. But right before that, we also have that beautiful epigraph where we have this idea of your life as being one long sentence. So what we have here is this interesting conflation of a life sentence as being both like your entire life is this one long sentence as you know posited by this Korean American poet who lives in Minneapolis and writes about race, but you also have this idea of, of um, a life sentence, you know, as, as that being something that is um, significantly served in prison. So, uh, and, and, and lots of times that idea of a life sentence is, is really points to the very, very grave problems in our judicial system because oftentimes, you know, weirdly, you can receive like three life sentences. And I mean, I understand how these things are, are meted out. I mean, I don't really, I am no Kim Kardashian. I am not a, um, I love the Kardashians by the way, but I am not practicing to be or studying to be a lawyer. But I understand, you know, the, the sort of the larger idea about life sentences and, and why it would be important to give someone three of them. But it does sort of point to this this sort of farcical nature of, of what our criminal system is doing to people. But we also have this idea um, of the sentence as being a work within a work. So we have this actual work. Um, there is a, a, a piece of writing that is inside the book. Um, it's a very sort of Shakespearean um, you know, notion, this idea of the play within the play. Here we have a, a, a sort of a text or a manuscript within the manuscript that takes on lots of significance. So we are going to page 70. This is a conversation about the sentence that Tuki is having with Louise. So one of the one of the elements of the book that feels postmodernist to me is this idea of Louise Erdrich herself entering into the text, and she's entering very much as herself. You know, she's an author. She lives in Minneapolis. She runs a bookstore. Um, so you have this sense of, and she has daughters. You have this sense of of, of um, the author as entering into the book, not as the author, but as a fictive person. So again, you know, you've got that disclaimer that's like any of these people who seem like they're real are not real when in fact Louise herself is entering into the text. So again, that postmodernist idea of, of pointing out the artificiality of the text, which actually makes it feel sort of truer in some ways. So here we're having a conversation between Tookie and Louise about books as being very, very potent. In fact, one of the sentences in the sentence, having killed Flora, Louise says, Books aren't meant to be safe, sadly or heroically, depending on the way you look at it, books do kill people. In places where books are forbidden, of course, but not here. This is Tookie talking. Not yet, knock wood. So I love this idea that Tookie has this sense of like, if you, if you ban books or forbid books, that's when books can kill people. What I'm trying to say is that a certain sentence of the book, a written sentence, a very powerful sentence, killed Flora. Louise was silent. After a few moments, she spoke, I wish I could write a sentence like that. So I love this idea of, of um, this humor here. I mean, it's this very kind of um, sad and powerful and interesting moment of, of, of grief and, and fear on the part of Tookie. And then it's kind of deflated by this excellent 
envious kind of uh, reaction on Louise's part, which is like, oh, you know, I wish I could kill someone with my writing. I wish I could be that powerful. So I love it in part because it is Louise Erdrich herself who is saying this. So again, we have this kind of layer upon layer upon layer of a, um, an author who is in the book, who is writing about the process of writing a book and in fact referring to a, a manuscript that is inside of the book. So you have all of these kind of different layers to it, but I do just love, I mean, I that was really a very funny piece in a book that, that isn't kind of overflowing with humor, but that has a lot of levity in places where that is very important. Okay, we're gonna look at page 347. We have a slight widening of the idea of the sentence. It's sort of coming full circle to this idea of the sentence, the type of sentence that, um, that Tuki is discussing in the very first paragraph. On the top of 347, the thing is most of us indigenous people do have to consciously pull together our identities. We've endured centuries of being erased and sentenced to live in a replacement culture. So even someone raised strictly in their own tradition gets pulled toward white perspectives. So again, this idea of being sentenced to something, um, you know, as, as a non-native American, American, wow, that is a mouthful, um, it's, 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 it's difficult for me to even begin to comprehend the idea of being sort of sentenced in the way that Native American peoples were, indigenous peoples were, without any kind of justice. I mean, it was an absolute travesty of justice. It was genocide uh, that occurred, but it, but it was a kind of sentence. They were serving a sort of sentence, uh, in that case, a, a death sentence. So toward the end of the novel, we have this really beautiful sort of turning. We've discussed the sentence as, as um, you know, like a prison sentence and the sentence as being your entire life uh, and this idea of um, the sentence as uh, a captivity narrative that's within this novel called The Sentence. But toward the end of the book, we um, were widening back out toward these, these sort of larger ideas, not just that one text, that manuscript, but the wider idea. And in fact, we're moving toward this idea of this beautiful sentence, the most beautiful sentence uh, in, in the uh, English language or in the human language that will allow uh, for some sort of a ritual, some sort of a transforming magical ritual. Again, really getting to the heart of language as being incredibly potent. Okay, so on 349, this is Penstemon talking to uh, Tuki about how they might rid the, the store of Flora's ghost. One time you said something about the most beautiful sentence in the human language, said Penn. As you know, I'm big on ritual. Maybe she needs one. What you're really referring to is the meaning of the sentence in any language, right? I suppose I am. Then I know what she wants to hear. So I love the idea of, of this younger generation as being very wise and of Tuki as, as learning a lot from these people. I mean, they seem totally preposterous in many ways. Um, Lawrence, I think that's his name, Jarvis um, uh, Laurent, maybe. He, you know, he's a descendant of the French um, sort of colonializers up there in Canada. Um, but you, you have the sense of the younger generation as, as sort of stepping up with some wisdom. And Penstemon, all Asima, you know, you would expect actually that people who work in bookstores, especially younger people working in bookstores, would be really, um, would be really interesting wise young people. So you have this sense here of, of her coming up with this idea of this perfect sentence. So then if we go to 355 and 356, we're not going to look at the very end uh, of the novel, but just the idea of this sentence uh, and the potency, in fact, of this sentence. We're going to read uh, quite a few chunks here on 355. So this is uh, Tuki who's reading. 
I read words out slowly in Latin that was probably painful to hear until I reached the crucial ending. Then, in firm tones, I said, Ego te absolvo. There was a suspension, a silence, a weighty sense of consideration. Then together, we spoke one of the loveliest sentences in the English language, go in peace. Nothing. She was still there. So I love this idea of um, this idea of the meaning of the sentence as being important and not the language. So they begin in Latin. That doesn't work. So then they say together, go in peace, uh, which is, um, you know, it's interesting. Ego te absolvo, it, it means rest in peace. It also means I absolve you, you know, I forgive you. So this idea of um, go in peace, not rest in peace. Wow, they've already said that about Flora. Uh, here they're saying go in peace, but she's still there. So there is this sense of like, we still need something else. This is a beautiful sentence, but we need something else. A little further down, Tuki says, wait a minute. I do know her favorite sentence. Listen, I had talked about Proust the day before. And in fact, once I'd memorized a sentence that I knew Flora loved as much as I did. A little tap on the window pane. And then I'm going to skip a bunch of stuff. Um, it was the rain. So this is the sentence that she's reading from Proust. Um, this is one of my little nits that I'm going to have to pick um, later with, with um, this, this characterization of Tookie. I do totally buy that Tookie is very well read, um, but some of the things that she's quoting seem to me a little too convenient. It seems like something that Louise was in fact wanting to incorporate in the novel that seemed very apt, and she just went ahead and gave it to Tookie, which maybe, maybe, um, I, if you didn't, if that was not jarring for you or, or didn't cause any kind of skepticism, then that's great. Okay, so she says it was the rain. So she reads this beautiful sentence from Proust, nothing, but I could hear, but I could feel her listening the way you feel it when an audience draws near. It was the rain. So then down she's going to say another sentence and if, if uh, her Latin was painful to hear, this is also going to be painful to hear. Meigwech aapaigi, Flora. So she says in native, in, in indigenous uh, language. I pitched my voice in that special register that expresses something true, however grating, or sells something broken. Thank you for saving my life. So there's this beautiful sense of, of trying these different things. Maybe it's go in peace in Latin from that tradition. Maybe it's a piece of literature. Maybe it's Proust. Um, and it's not, in fact, that. And in fact, it is this thank you spoken in uh, this native language that is what Flora, in fact, needs to hear. So the important thing here being they're trying these different sentences that are these very sort of weighty and important sentences from these different traditions. And finally, it is um, the, the native language that is the one that is, in fact, um, what Flora needed to hear in order to, uh, you know, to, to, to be at peace. So she's speaking again here to just like the incredible power of words, the incredible power of the sentence, and not, not a life sentence, um, but, but the idea of, of what we can construct out of language. Okay, we're going to move on to this idea of postmodernism, and, and then we're going to briefly uh, discuss the importance of names. So I've touched on postmodernism already a bit, but I'm going to just quickly walk through a few things. So um, 
it was interesting to me, and I don't think I would have automatically put Louise Erdrich in this category of postmodernist, um, but when you look at her Wikipedia, which I always do, and my that's where I begin my sleuthing, um, it, it has her as a postmodernist writer, which was interesting. Um, and I think it, it actually inflected the way that I read this book. She does have a lot of elements of postmodernism, um, but I, I think I associate postmodernism with a slightly stricter definition of, of writing that happened in the sort of late 60s and early 70s, frankly, by a lot of uh, hyper-intellectual men who were hyper-intellectualizing everything. But we do see lots of the elements. One is this metafiction, this idea of, of writing about the writing. So, you know, busting into that boilerplate thing or having, um, a, you know, talking about the sentence and the sentence and the sentence and all these iterations. Um, we have self-reflexivity, which is sort of that same idea that, you know, we have, um, you know, Louise, who is the author of the of this book. Her name is right there on the front of the cover, but it also is the name of a bookseller who happens to be a writer who is a character in the novel. Um, intertextuality, I mean, this book has that, you know, up to its eyeballs. We, it's, it's, you know, there's constant references to different books. One of the ways that Flora is, um, you know, lets herself know, or sorry, lets Tookie know her real name is by tossing down different books that all have, um, that all have the name Lily in them because that is in fact Tookie's real name. So um, you have this sense of intertextuality as being very important. At the end there, we see the Proust. Um, there are all sorts of different references to different books that, that sort of save, um, save lives or, or kill people, frankly. Um, and in the end, in fact, you have those really excellent uh, lists of books that were so fun to check out. You also often have an unreliable narrator. And I liked that idea in postmodernism, usually do. I don't find Tookie unreliable, but I like the idea of her as, I like the idea of sort of needing to be suspicious of her because she herself says, I love to lie. Um, you know, this is a problem. I'm constantly lying. But, but we sort of have this sense, at least I did, call me naive, maybe I missed a bunch of stuff, um, as, as being kind of on the inside. We're, we're close enough to who she is and close enough to sort of her journey of, of redemption um, and her love affair with Pollux and, and how she's struggling with Hedda to really feel like she is, um, in fact, a fairly reliable narrator. But you also have lots of intrusion of the real world in postmodernism, and we certainly see that here. We have Minneapolis, we have various different books, we have bookselling ideas, we have the idea of you know taxes, all these different kinds of things that come up um, that feel like uh, real world kind of issues. And, and often postmodernism will challenge authority, and certainly that book, this book is doing that. So there are lots of, you know, when, when there is writing about the riots that happen not riots, um, the, the, the very important protests that happen after, um, after George Floyd's murder, you, you have this sense of, of being very closely aligned and being very sympathetic to these young protesters who are out there, you know, risking their lives in the midst of COVID to really take a stand and to call attention to the injustice here. So this book does challenge authority in lots of different ways and in ways that I think are very convincing and very powerful. And again, um, we touched on these things briefly, but there are lots of different ways the text itself calls attention with the little space break things with the different fonts. But one thing we didn't talk about yet is this idea of this slapstick quality. So in the beginning in particular, I had these real um, sort of uh, notions of like Kurt Vonnegut and uh, especially Thomas Pynchon, who are postmodernist writers, especially Pynchon. He's kind of like the big um, postmodern, uh, postmodernist. 
Um, there's a lot of sort of slapsticky stuff that happens in there because one of the things that that is helping them be sort of meta-fictive or remind us that what we're reading is artifice is by using all of these sort of tropes. You know, it's not exactly someone slipping on a banana peel, but kind of in that vein. And the main way that I saw that with Tuki was in these verbs that she was using when she was talking about this crime that she commits by moving this body, um, you know, essentially becoming a body snatcher. Um, and it happens to have the drugs in the armpits. So we have these very kind of stagey verbs, um, ones like sprawl and um, gouge and clobber and howl and flung especially clobber, you have this sense of it as being sort of evoking like comic strips or like um, Laurel and Hardy, this idea of clobbering someone and sprawling. Um, so, so there's this an, a sense of exaggeration in these very powerful verbs that make that whole first um, section, that whole first description of her crime as being very sort of slapsticky and exaggerated in a way that... Um, you know, again, this is sort of another story within the story, but that sense of, of postmodernist, um, you know, pointing to the artifice of, of the, the, um, the text by, you know, incorporating these words that, that have lots of sort of overtones of, of other tropes, of these sort of cartoon tropes and these exaggerated tropes. Um, okay, and then we are going to move on from the postmodernist elements, and we are going to discuss very briefly the way that, that Erdrich is so deft with her choice of names. So Erdrich makes this very important um, sort of uh, statement about the importance of names. And it, this is in a, an, an interview that I heard when she was talking about the sentence, that there is your given name, which is important, but even more important is, is sort of your dreamed name. And that dreamed name is often kind of a reflection of your soul or, uh, you know, a, a, of your true essence. So we don't, we, Tuki is a, um, you know, sort of a dreamed name or a, a sort of a given name, which we're going to discuss in just a second. Um, but it is not, in fact, a given name. And the given name in, in Tuki's case, in fact, is very difficult for her to hear, which we'll discuss when we uh, talk about the very close of the novel in the third installment of the seminar. Uh, but we do, um, we have these really beautiful, sort of very significant names. So we have Pollux, uh, which is, is the, one of the stars in Gemini. And so again, you have this idea of duality and this idea of halves and, and this idea of, of um, Gemini being the twin, of, of he being very connected with Tuki in a way that is, is very, uh, very significant. We have Pollux himself says at one point, a name can be very powerful. And, and, you know, in the tradition of, of Native American um, peoples, there is this sense of, of names as being very significant and names as being um, much more kind of um, evocative. It, and so it's, it's very fitting, in fact, that, that uh, Pollux has the name of a star. There is something very kind of, um, you know, cosmic and, and very sort of earthy um, in that evocation of Gemini. And then for Tuki, Tuki is one of these kinds of, um, it was so interesting to, to research that name because it didn't, it, it, there wasn't a very sort of clear association. I mean, I had a lot of different associations, but most of them felt kind of Yiddish, which was kind of strange. Um, but this idea of Tukas, you know, the buttocks, um, and it was a last name that was from sort of the late 1800s. So maybe maybe this is a name that Tuki um, or, or Tukas um, is it maybe that was an important name in Minnesota um, but but there is a sense of 
depth of of playfulness and a, and, and a sense of, of, of sort of ridiculousness about Tookie. There's also that idea of something being taken, um, that, that, that something, you know, if you took something, uh, that the name, in fact, was, was taken from her. So, um, and Pallas, uh, P-A-L-L-A-S, is a girl's name meaning wisdom. Pollux is that star of Gemini. It's also, it also comes from the Greek. It's another name for crown or for, um, it's like Athena. It's kind of a male version of Athena. Then we have Hedda, which is a girl's name, a German name. It's kind of a contemporary name, which I think speaks to some of the, you know, this immigrant population that came to Minnesota, this idea of, of this real mix of people uh, and names, again, being important. It tells you quite a bit about, you know, this person's lineage, like Laurent as being, uh, you know, from, from this sort of colonial French group. And then we have Asima, which is a, a very powerful name. It means a home ruler. Importantly, Asima also means one who works with tobacco in the native tradition. So that would be sort of a healer kind of a, a, a role from what I, from, from the little that I know of that tradition. So, and then we have Jarvis, uh, which is a servant spear, which is very, it's interesting because Laurent, Lawrence, Laurent was wanting to, to sort of be, well, that was going to be his name, Jarvis, and, and his, his forefathers, that was one of their names. But this idea of the spear, this idea of, of something, you know, it's like a, it, there's a little bit of a Cupid's arrow kind of thing because Jarvis, in fact, really does uh, pierce the heart of our Tuki and, and really does become, you know, very important to her. But also you get this sense of Jarvis as being a real future warrior. I mean, he's the daughter of someone, you know, for all we can tell here, sort of a very powerful single mom type person who is... Uh, you know, not afraid to have this baby and, and not afraid to um, show up at very important protests, even in the midst of COVID. The, so then we have the actual name of our Tookie, which is Lily. So there is this nice sense of Lily as being an echo of flora, but Lily it, it can be purity. So it's often symbolic of, of innocence, and but, but also of strength. So you have this sense of flora as being kind of a generic flower, you know, flora and fauna, this is just sort of the idea of any flower, whereas lily is a much more kind of specific, specific name. In many ways, it didn't resonate for me. Tookie didn't seem like a lily to me, but because I think there's something sort of delicate about the name lily and purity and innocence also does not speak to me. So there is this sense of a, of a name like Tookie as being kind of the more authentic name for that person. And then, um, so her mother, in fact, we know that her name was Charlotte Beaupre. And Beaupre means beautiful meadow. Charlotte, importantly, Charlotte is a, is a feminine version of Charles, which means free man. So you have this sense of, of her mother, who was absent from Tookie's life, this Charlotte person, as being absent in large part because she was high all the time. But this sense of her as being free because she is not, weighed down by any responsibilities in the world. She's free in large part because she was on drugs, and then she is free in, in many ways because she is dead. There's also a, um, you know, a large amount of n not exactly kind of cynicism there, but, you know, is she free? I, I'm not sure if you can really say that. So there, there's kind of a, an irony to this idea of her as being an iteration of, of Charles, which means free man. On 136, the significance of Tookie's name is coming further to the fore. So we're, we're sort of, you know, a third of the way into the book, and she's speaking with Jackie, who she works with at the bookstore. And um, there, the question of her name comes up, and she obfuscates here. So she says to Jackie, 
I don't even know where I got the name Tookie. And then Jackie says, didn't realize it was your nickname. What's your real name? And then um, there's a little shuffling around, and she says, I can't remember. Maybe I saw it on some official forms a few times, I said. But do you know I've blocked it out? I guess that's weird. So then it goes on a little bit from there. But it's important. Um, I, I think we do, in fact, you know, I think we know that she knows her name. Um, and, the, you know, Jackie is pushing her on this, but she really is not going to tell us the name. And honestly, when I first read that, I was like, wait, Louise, you've taken this one step too far. I don't think that she would have forgotten her actual name. But then I realized, in fact, that Tookie is only saying this so that she doesn't have to tell Jackie her name. And um, the thing that sort of um, helped me to understand that was on page 138, at the end um, of, of the chapter and at the end of the section, this is right before we get to this next big section, Tookie is talking about her husband Pollux and says, they're, they're, she's discussing the fact that they're, they're sort of careful with each other in lots of ways, and that's part of the reason why their um, relationship is so profound. Oh, he fussed sometimes and worried, and maybe got so mad that it came to the tip of his tongue. He knew. He'd arrested me. He'd married me. And I knew that he knew, but he never said my real name. So there's this sense of this history that's really significant that is not being shared uh, between the two of them. It, it's not, it, it sort of doesn't come up between the two of them when in fact both of them know it. So there's this sense of her real name as something very significant, even at this point, only one third into the novel. So on page 357 here, um, we have the, the, this um, question of her name as sort of coming to the fore, coming to sort of a climax. On 357, down here um, in the section that is titled Tookie's Return, I cannot remember reading Flora's full name in the book as I read the simple sentence that killed. Her name was Lily Florabella Truax. So there is this sense here of, of finding out the sentence that killed Flora. And then we find out, let's see, three pages later on page 360, in the middle, close to the end um, of yet another large section, we have, we have this sentence right here that is, is Tuki speaking. It's importantly italicized here. It says, my name is Lily Florabella Truax Beaupre, named after the woman who helped my mother, the woman who became my ghost. So you have this sense here of, of the name, in fact, of being very important because we are realizing that this ghost who is haunting her is the ghost um, of, of someone who was very close to her mother, someone who, um, who, who, who has been absent from her life, and someone who uh, is haunting both her and the bookstore, who is, um, has a problematic, to say the least, uh, relationship with Native American peoples, but someone who is intimately tied to uh, Tookie's experience as a Native woman. So with that, we will close this second chunk of this three-part uh, seminar on Louise Erdrich's The Sentence. Tune in for the third section where we will be talking about just a couple of shortcomings of the novel, very little things that I wanted to point out. Um, and then we will be talking about maternity and then looking at the close of the novel. So I hope that section two has helped you understand the book a bit more, and I hope you tune in for section three. going to continue this third section of our lecture on Louise Erdrich's The Sentence 
by taking a look at maternity. So this is one of the strengths, in my opinion, of the novel. Erdrich has this really um, sort of multifold way that she talks about mothering, and it has a lot to do with the sort of trajectory and the character arc of Tuki, our main character. So in the novel, uh, we have lots of different sort of representations of really what is fairly unconventional mothering. We have Pollux's mom and Tookie's moms both being absent. So you've heard me talk before about, um, you know, it's sort of the Bambi effect in that, well, it's also like a Grimm's fairy tale moment. So it goes way, way back, way before Disney. But this idea that mothers have to be out of the story in order for true sort of danger and adventure to occur because mothers generally will keep things rolling and keep people safe and when you take mothers out of the equation um you know all sorts of adventures and all sorts of uh you know story ensues in this case pollux's mother and tuki are replaced by other maternal figures so you have a lot of mothering that is happening in the novel but it's very unconventional of course, the mother that is um, Tuki in many senses is, is she's a stepmother and she's becoming more and more of a mother. But the mother who we see sort of at the center of the novel is Hedda. So she's a young mother. She's not married. Uh, her, you know, Laurent is largely absent. And uh, they have this baby named Jarvis. And, you know, it's, it's one of these kind of unconventional things where at one point she says they were going to move in with a roommate who's cool with the baby. So it's this kind of um, this reimagining of the family, or not even the family, but the reimagining of, of, of community and child rearing in this younger generation. But of course, throughout the COVID situation, but also throughout the novel in general, you have Hedda relying fairly, uh, fairly heavily on her father and her stepmother. And what happens in that, the, the course of Tookie taking care of young baby Jarvis, is that we see, again, this kind of growth. We see this change that is occurring in Tookie that allows her to do a lot of healing uh, and, and to sort of complete her arc as a character throughout the novel. We're going to look first at page 119. So this is a, um, a description of Tookie holding the baby. She's uncomfortable holding Jarvis in the beginning. The name Jarvis just kills me. I should have looked up what it means. Um, anyway, um, so in the middle of page, what is this, 119, we have this description of her sort of studying this infant and, and Jarvis, baby Jarvis, studying her back. So the study was mutual. He stared holes through me. He saw straight into my heart and didn't seem to care that it was riddled with cowardice, hubris, stupidity, regret. Those things meant nothing to him. He saw that what was left of my heart was good and loving. He trusted me not to scare him, not to drop him. I blinked to keep the raw tears back. So already in the very, you know, this is only sort of a third into the novel, and it's at the very beginning of our introduction to this baby um, and to the relationship between Hedda and um, her stepmother, who she begins to call mom throughout the course of the book, and this baby, Jarvis. So you have this recognition here of, of this real healing that's happening. This baby with all of his innocence and all of his wisdom is looking at her for who she is and is not seeing anything, you know, appalling to him, which is a real revelation for Tookie. So on page 225, we're going to look at the next example of this kind of healing. So here we have Hedda having a discussion. You know, we're, we're sort of 100 pages later. The relationship has developed quite a bit. And it's um, a conversation between Hedda, who is the biological mother of baby Jarvis, and her stepmother, Tookie, who has had, um, you know, shown very little impulse 
toward maternity throughout the book until, of course, Jarvis arrived. So Hedda says, I just want to state this. I am over my sexual adventure phase, Laurent, that stupid movie, etc. Jarvis has taught me there are better things. And also, well, I like Asima. Like, like her? Hedda nodded, glancing away. I have to say, I'm glad to hear that. And then Hedda goes on to say this to Tuffy. Wow, look at you, said Hedda. So normal, so momish and all. I never thought you could be momish. And you're such a good grandma, a kukum, a nukumis, whatever. You love Jarvis. You like Jarvis so much. Love him. Love him, really, I mumbled. For some reason, all this was making me uncomfortable, shy, ridiculous. I tried to shake that off because I wanted to be a person who can be trusted with these kinds of words. So then we have this nice space break and another um, title of a section, which is really nice because it allows us to see um, this, this idea of her wanting to be someone who can manage these words as, as sort of, um, you know, there's a certain finality about that and a certain sort of beauty in that. It also brings back this idea of, of Tuki as being very, you know, invested in words and invested in reading and invested in literature and certainly the power of words and the power of sentences. But what I love here is Hedda, um, this idea of her being momish and of her being a grandmother, all of that um, is new territory for Tuki and it is involving a lot of vulnerability and a lot of trust that she hadn't been able to sort of tap into before. Okay, we're gonna look at 237, just a few pages later. And, and this is a very dark moment. This is right after the, um, the, the murder of George Floyd. And uh, Tuki is, is thinking of other instances where young men have been murdered. I thought of Falando's companion, his girlfriend, Diamond Reynolds. Why did you shoot him, sir? I thought of Diamond's four-year-old child talking to her handcuffed mother in the backseat of Yanez's patrol car. I don't want you to get shooted, Mama. I am here for you. So that for me was very difficult to read. This idea of, uh, you know, it, it's, it's not even, well, it is a paragraph, but it's a brief paragraph in the middle of this novel. And it's absolutely wrenching. This idea of th this real life incident that happened where Philando was killed and his, um, it, I, don't, I don't remember all of these different details, but apparently uh, Diamond Reynolds, his girlfriend, was being handcuffed in the back of the car and, and the young child, who is certainly verbal, old enough to be understanding that she doesn't want her mother to be shooted. Um, it's just, a, it's a gut-wrenching look at maternity here and the kind of trust and the kind of um, symbiosis between the young child and the mother. So then right after that, uh, Hedda says, thanks for taking Jarvis, mom. Sure, honey, I said. So you have this beautiful thing. So you have this, this, this very difficult, stark image of motherhood and all that goes into it and, the, and this protective urge and this pain um, at, at the child being worried about the parent. And then right away you have Hedda you know, giving the baby to, or trusting the baby to, to Tuki, and then also thanking her and calling her mom. And then this very sweet sort of, um, sure, honey, I said this, even just the pet name there is really significant because there's sort of a mundane, you know, very sort of maternal feeling about it that's really, that's really lovely. And, and also importantly, signals again, this building trust and this building sort of normalcy that for Tuki uh, is very significant. So a little bit later, while uh, Tuki is taking care of the baby, we have this kind of self-affirmation from her, which is very significant, uh, on 242. All right, 
I'd smell of baby pee, but I'd passed my first test as a solo grandma with a no previous child handicap too. I'd fed a baby and put him to sleep. Who could argue? I was less than awful. I curved my hand around Jarvis's tiny body and sat back down at the computer. So she's again focusing on, on you know, everything that's happening around them, the COVID and the murder of George Floyd. But there is this sense of her not only as, as succeeding, but also sort of internalizing this idea that she's not awful. So there's this sense of, of healing that's happening by virtue of her stepping into this maternal role. On 270, we're going to see a continuation of this. So right before um, one of the little uh, boxes here that is actually a, a different kind of box, it's like a little square X kind of a thing, I'm going to read three sentences from this paragraph. Oh, and this is about Tookie as a young child. I caught the school bus at the end of the block. After I got my homework and tests back, I would bring them to mom, lay them on the table. F or A plus, she never noticed, rarely spoke. Sometimes she didn't speak a word for what seemed like months. At one point, I decided to become a person who didn't feel so much. I stand by that decision, though it didn't work. So what's interesting is we have this, um, we have very little information about Tookie's mother originally, but then as the story is moving on and as we have her healing in this kind of maternal role that she takes on as a grandmother, we then begin to hear bits and pieces of her childhood. It's as if she's finally able to start looking at the truth of her childhood and, and heal by virtue of taking um, a maternal role upon herself. It's a really beautiful and complicated um, sort of plot thing where we have the idea of you know, the, this stepdaughter who she is not you know, historically gotten along with very well you know, the stepdaughter is entering. Um, we have her being uncomfortable with the baby. And, well, right from the start, she loves the baby, but the concept of the baby and the, the fatherless baby and, and whatnot. And then we have her as she is gaining trust and, and, and building her relationship both with this sort of grandson figure and this stepdaughter figure. She's able to sort of process a bit more about her own maternal experience. And then we have this really striking sort of culmination, I think, of a lot of this maternal stuff on pages 359 and 60. So I have to say I was kind of waiting for something like this. I think that you can read this as a subtle sort of birth. So my sense is that we are definitely going to have some sort of rebirth for Tookie. I don't know how, what shape it's going to take, but I felt like we were sort of moving toward this idea of her um, because there was so much maternal stuff in the book that we were going to have some sort of rebirth. And sure enough, I got my rebirth on behalf of, of Tookie here. So um, right in the middle here of page 359, th this is when she's beginning to figure out her name. My mother did tell me that she'd stayed clean while she was pregnant. That was something. She could have ditched Flora and gone on a nine-month drinking binge. That's true. My mother's name was Charlotte Beaupre. So we have this idea of, of her mother as making this one sacrifice and having one sacrifice being to stay clean and sober during her pregnancy, which in fact is a very large sacrifice in lots of ways, uh, I'm, I'm sure, for a, a, a someone with substance abuse issues. But we have this idea of her finally being able to sort of look and, and, and look for some sort of grace in her mother um, when there is actually not a lot of grace to be found. Uh, on page 360, the, the scene continues. I put her ashes in the Mississippi River, not because she ever noticed the river or gave the slightest indication she wanted that, but because it was a way to think of her as she'd always been, 
wordless and inert, pulled along by a strong hidden current. So there is this sense of acceptance that we have here, um, you know, and rivers lots of times in literature are meant to be read, well, they're symbolic of, of time passing and of death and of things being always different but always the same. So, so there is this real sense of, of, of loss, but also this kind of perfect metaphor for her mother who again was wordless and inert, but was pulled along by this overwhelming addiction uh, to substances. So right after we have this idea of her mother being pulled along by the hidden current, we have this next paragraph. My name is Lily Florabella Truax Beaupre, named after the woman who helped my mother the woman who became my ghost. So you have this idea of Flora, who is haunting the bookstore, as having become her mother in lots of ways. And then Flora is hosting, is haunting, not hosting, she's haunting um, the, the, the uh, confessional that they have in their uh, bookstore. And the confessional obviously has all sorts of religious connotations, and, and there is this sense of it um, as being used in very sort of profane ways. But there is this idea of, of that as being kind of this sacred place. And there is a thought at some point that, that that's how they're going to get Flora out, and Flora is in, in fact haunting that area particularly. But in the end here, we have this idea of Tuki as being in that confessional. And then we end this important section um, of the book. It's right before we get on to Souls and Saints, which is the final section, um, but also the end of this, this chapter here on 360. She says, I opened the door and walked out of the sin box. Stained, tainted, human. I stood in a beam of weak autumn light. So there's this idea of, of, of birth here. And I think, I think it's not too heavy handed. I mean, there's this idea of walking out of the sin box. You know, if you think about original sin or you think about, um, you know, in any sort of Catholic, uh, maybe all Christian religions, this idea of needing to be absolved of sin when you're very first born, this idea of stained, tainted human. Of course, also the idea of being purified after a confession when in fact she is not purified. She understands that she is stained and tainted and human. But she's coming out of this of this box. Um, I'm just, you know, it's occurring to me right now that that is a slang word for vagina. I'm not really sure that Louise really wanted us to lean into that concept, but it is in fact a concept. Um, the sin box actually sounds like a word that any, you know, good misogynist would use for the vagina. But this idea of coming out of the box uh, and into a beam of weak autumn light, this idea of, of, of coming out of you know, a dark womb kind of place into the light, we do have, in fact, this kind of birth of Tuki. And it's really beautiful in lots of ways because this idea of being um, stained, tainted, human, she's, she's sort of accepting herself for who she is, which is, I think, the most kind of gratifying sort of, of birth. It's not that she's cleansed and she's suddenly perfect, it's that she is accepting all of her, um, all of the fa faults that she perceives in herself. So I think we have this really beautiful kind of study of motherhood. You know, Louise Erdrich, is, she's one of seven children. She has a lot of experience, it would seem to me, with motherhood, given that she had three adopted children and then four uh, children of her own. It seems like she lives, I think, with one of her daughters at least um, and, and works with them. So I would imagine that there is a lot of complexity in her role both as a daughter and as a mother. And I love the idea of so much of that being kind of funneled into this book in this very artful um, and subtle and I think very gratifying way. 
So we do see Tookie going through this this major growth throughout the course of the book from sort of a self-doubting, self-hating ex-con to someone who really, um, you know, sees herself as as flawed, certainly, but capable of love and capable of receiving love and as someone who is not awful. So the novel is told in a first-person uh, uh, perspective, a first-person point of view, a first-person voice, uh, and it's told from the perspective of Tookie. But then there are three sections, they're brief, and they come you know, sort of uh, well into the novel. The first is at page 180, then at 248 and 282. So I guess you could argue they're happening kind of in the center of the book, but there were not enough of them and they didn't happen at intervals that allowed me to expect them. So suddenly we have Hedda's perspective. So it's still first person, which was confusing to me. Um, it's still first person, but we are talking about Hedda's experience, her point of view. Then we are talking about Pollux's point of view, um, which you know I guess you could argue that maybe family, people who are in her family get to have a section that is their own point of view. But again, they're too brief. But then we throw in a section that is told um, by Asima. It's a first person perspective from her. So it's this strange thing where most of the novel is told from the perspective of Tookie, and then we have um, you know, her stepdaughter, her husband, and, and then one of her work associates kind of chiming in for these kind of cameos, but it's all in the first person. And so I found it just a bit disconcerting. And you know, sort of the, the, the thinking on this kind of thing is that if you're gonna mess with the narrator, you need to have very good reason to do so unless it's very consistent or there's there's sort of a rhyme and reason to it. But I, I just wasn't convinced that we needed those sections told from the perspectives of those people. So I felt like that was a bit a bit weird. And there were parts of Tookie, this is kind of my larger uh, issue with the book, there were parts that just were not believable. So that yes, if, you know, we, she read ferociously when she was in prison and, and we get the sense um, of her, I love in the very first, um, the very first paragraph of the book where she's parsing the word sentence and she's talking about sibilance, which frankly, that should have been a red flag for me because um, I think even if you read voraciously, you're probably not um, like a linguistics, you know, parser. So we have her using the word sibilant and then we have her say this, that bummer of a word, which I loved. I mean, bummer seems like a word that Tookie would use very um, frequently and very easily. So you have this nice juxtaposition between this kind of inflated diction, I received a dictionary, and then this bummer of a word. But I also, that, that disconnect was a bit too much of a disconnect for me um, in certain places. Weirdly, not in the beginning because I was so distracted and so um, starry-eyed by all of that linguistics parsing. But, but later, it, it sort of jarred me. So one of those examples is on page 11. She talks about how the, 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 her former lover, who she is, um, you know, the, the dead guy whose body is, she is snatching on behalf of her new lover, he's wearing a fake vintage white snake t-shirt. So you have this idea of, of her as being someone who recognizes that and, and, and sees white snake as a, as a cultural uh, touchstone um, as she's folding his arms, uh, you know, his, his armpit with her with her drug cash in them. But then she says she's folding the arms as if he were a disciple of Horus, H-O-R-U-S. I don't know who Horus is. I mean, this is obviously a classical reference, um, but and I didn't look it up because I was like, you know what, Louise, I'm not looking that up because I do not believe that Tookie would know who Horus is. So I like the idea of balancing Whitesnake with something like Horus, but it was kind of a bridge too far um, for me. 
I also, um, the, the IQ test, uh, so it was, it's interesting to me on the one hand, yes, we needed to know in fact that she is bright. And um, the way that our narrator, Tuki, says that, that she um, had taken the IQ test when she was young and her mother thought that she had cheated on it. So um, it was kind of a nice reflection of the mother, but it felt a little bit heavy handed on the part of Louise Erdrich to be like, oh yeah, this person did very well on their IQ test. It just seemed, it seemed a little bit more than we needed. I think there are lots of ways. Um, in fact, I already believed that she was intelligent. That doesn't come until page 119. I, I think I would, have, I would have taken for granted that she's someone who had a lot of um, intellectual capacity. And then she's talking um, another sort of nitpicky thing um, when she is talking about, oh, sorry, the IQ test doesn't even come until page 356. On page 119, she is so enamored of this baby Jarvis, but she says at one point that his features were drawn with a 0.003 micron marker. And, you know, I have uh, uh, one kid in particular who's really into pens and whatnot. So I have kind of a vague sense of what an 003 micron marker is, but I don't really know what it means. And I was a little bit like, okay, wait, Louise, I have, you know, I've followed you to, to the extent that I totally believe that Tookie has read a lot and she has all of these different literary references, but I'm not really sure that I can follow you to the like, well, I don't know, maybe in Birchbark books, they have Birch bark books they have like a big you know pen section maybe that's why she knows that but it just felt a little too specific and a little bit too just uh, like it just seemed a little out of character with Tookie and anytime you have description that feels out of character it ends up sort of um making you doubt the whole entire house of cards uh on page 123 she uses the word attenuated to describe a plaid flannel in my sense of attenuated, I honestly didn't look it up. Attenuated in my mind just means kind of weakened. Um, so I don't, I am now interested to know what the actual definition of attenuated is. But in my mind, it means something that's kind of weakened. So I guess you could describe a, a flannel, a worn flannel as attenuated, but it just seemed so heavy handed and it is a repetition. So she says the word attenuated twice within the period of like, I don't know, 10, 15 pages. I couldn't actually find the other um, the other example of attenuated. This is why I should always have an electronic version. But, but this idea of attenuated to describe the flannel and also to be using it twice in close proximity, just again, seemed just a bit too far for me. And very quickly, um, at one point, um, at one point, Penstemon talks about having the urge to leap, and she calls it l'appel du vide, um, which I totally believe that that Penstemon is this like very brainy, very well-read young person. But this, I, it just seemed like gilding the lily here, um, gilding the tookie, gilding the the lily, Louise, because this idea of l'appel du vide, there just was no reason to like throw in the French part. Um, the French translation, just, you know, the urge to leap would have been totally enough. We didn't need that kind of extra part. And then on 346, I really had to kind of throw up my hands. I have some kind of um, not so nice marginalia at this point in the book. On 346, um, we have this this sense that um, Tuki, which is already very well described to us, that she keeps having this sense that she's going to sort of fly apart. And I like that for so many different reasons. There are lots of, you know, there are lots of divisions in this book that I think very nicely capture the divisions in our country and the idea of inside and outside with COVID and 
and and the idea of fear and the idea of things falling apart you know as sort of this this much sort of widening gyre you know this kind of you know this idea of of, of things falling apart and of um of entropy but we didn't need all of that and we certainly didn't need the word deliquescence uh, or sorry deliquesce dele, I mean, I deliquescence was enough for me. This is apparently deliquesce. So she, um, on page three forty six, she had this idea of being a, a porous person. So Penstemon says, "I think you're porous." I looked at my arms, strong from marine style push ups. I turned my hands over. I seemed so solid, but in my life there had been so many times I'd been on the verge of dissolving, so close to it that I'd looked up and copied down a word. So I get this idea of dissolving and of sort of flying apart. Oh, sorry, I almost fell over. But this idea of um, feeling not so much this idea of dissolving that she looked up this word uh, and copied it down. But I was like, wait, you can't do that. You can't look up a word without knowing the word to begin with. Like I just was like, Louise, this is a bridge too far. And the word, in fact, is deliquesce. To melt away or disappear as if by melting. Two, chemistry to dissolve and become liquid by absorbing moisture from the air. Three, botany, to branch out into numerous subdivisions that lack a main axis. B, to become fluid or soft on maturing, as do certain fungi. Honestly, as I was reading it, I was like, if there is something earth shattering that really is just gonna like bust open this novel for me, then I will um, allow Deliquesse, but it really doesn't. I mean, you've got these kind of it's a little bit of a show-offy thing that really bought me nothing and in fact really brought me out of the moment with Tookie. So we're at, you know, we're toward the end of the novel. We're at this very important moment. She's, um, you know, really getting to the bottom of, of these fears and how they make her feel and this idea of dissolving and falling apart and her sturdiness as a person and as, as a cohesive identity. All of that is so well done that I do not think that we need this um, idea of looking up a word which again, I don't know how she looked up Deliquesse if, um, if, if she didn't know it to begin with. So that is the last of the nitpicking that I will do on poor Louise for the day. We are now going to move on to the close of the novel. So the last thing we're going to do is take a very quick look at the close of the novel. So on page 374, Right before all of the awesome lists of all of the books, we have this really, really beautiful ending that I think is actually a very nice extension of this idea of maternity. Pollux is finally back from the hospital. She's there with the baby, um, and they're all kind of together. They're chilling. They're chilling. It says right here, <laughs> oh my God, I have, I, you can't see this from where you are, but in my um, marginalia, it says, no because she says we fell into a dreamy assonance and I was once again like Louise no no come on especially here on the last page because otherwise the page is beautiful so assonance is when 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 uh, a word well the, the 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 definition that is familiar to me is when words rhyme by vowels so 
lots of times we think of words as rhyming only, um, you know, with with consonants like uh, can't and ant. But you can also have assonance, which is, just means that the vowels rhyme regardless of what the um, what the consonants are doing. And yes, that does sound very poetic and it sounds very beautiful. And the idea of finishing this book that began with kind of this linguistic play, um, the idea of finishing with the idea of vowels as rhyming and consonants being sort of not important, yes. I guess that's beautiful, but it was so distracting to me because I was like, really, assonance? Like, what is Tookie? What is she doing here? Anyway, we're going to read the rest of this. Jarvis awakened. We regarded each other in the calm light. I'm going to skip down a little bit. Together, we straggled through a year that sometimes seemed like the beginning of the end, a slow tornado. I want to forget this year, but I'm also afraid I won't remember this year. I want this now to be the now where we save our place, your place, on earth. Ghosts bring elegies and epitaphs, but also signs and wonders. What comes next? I want to know, so I imagine to drag, so I manage to drag the dictionary to my side. I need a word, a sentence, the door is open, go. So I, um, I like this as an ending. I think it's maybe not the strongest part of the novel. Um, I, I like the idea of needing a sentence at the end. And, and there was that beautiful part about finding, you know, the most beautiful sentence in, in, in sort of all languages, which was go in peace or, um, you know, ego te absolvo. So, so this idea of forgiveness and going in peace, which you have to imagine that that is part of, of what um, resonates. You know, if Tuki is thinking of one of the most beautiful, and it's Penstemon's idea as well, but if you're thinking about um, Penstemon, by the way, being a flower, um, I don't think I included her in my in my in my list of flowers, but this idea of of reaching for the dictionary at the end of the book to me felt a teeny bit belabored, and it felt a little bit um, this idea of I need a word, a sentence, the door is open, go. So I do like the idea of the door being open. I think it does resonate nicely with this kind of rebirth, you know, that she's pushing through the the door of the sin box and she's coming out into this light. So there is an, a very nice sort of echo of that, but I have to say that did not occur to me right away. So this idea, um, and, and here she's also talking, I think, to Jarvis. I think she's talking to the baby in some ways that she's going to let him go. She's going to let time go. So it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a really, I think, a very fitting ending in lots of ways. And this book is so rich and it's such a um, crazy quilt in lots of ways that it would be difficult to sort of tie it up with a bow. So I think that this is a very good, it's a good solid ending if we just get rid of that assonance up at the top. So um, I hope that you have enjoyed learning um, a little bit more about my take on The Sentence by Louise Erdrich. I really enjoyed reading the book and certainly got tons out of um, digging into it so that I could share my thoughts with you all. So please join me again for something else. Take care, keep reading. Readers, thank you so much for tuning in today. The lectures really are the lifeblood of the Fox page, but you should really go to thefoxpage.com. There are five minute recommendations where I will predict in about five minutes whether you should or should not tackle Ulysses, or maybe why you shouldn't be so snobby about the recent uh, Leanne Moriarty beach read. There are also talks, no rereading required, on old favorites like Are You There God It's Me Margaret or Frog and Toad, which is quite frankly a literary masterpiece. 
There's also this very cool thing where you answer a couple of questions and this cool wheel spins around and spits out a recommendation that I think might be exactly what you need and it might be something that stretches you a little bit. Come and check out thefoxpage.com. Thanks for listening and mostly happy reading.